Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors and years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Paula Baker-Laporte. Now, Paula and I spoke in October, September, October 21, and that was the first time I had a chat with her. And she is an architect. She's a fellow of the American Institute of Architects, as well as she is a building biologist. And with this, she has an amazing book called A Healthy House. And this is uh, the fourth edition of this book, and I think it's 20-odd years or something. She keeps writing more about how to make your house healthier, which is something that's on everybody's lips. And in doing this, the book is available through Amazon, like you can get it today if you want it. So take a listen. We're going to talk about the book, but we're going to talk about much more than the book as well. So Paula, welcome back to Talk Design. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Adrian. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I think that this is one of the most important subjects in the building realm that can be discussed. If you put all the things together, there's all the things that cost too much to build and it does all these things and all the rest. But to talk about design and beyond design, materiality, and then how you mix these two things to create a home that nurtures you as opposed to a home that robs from you. And I'm going to let you talk about that because it's your absolute expertise and specialty. And as I say, 25, more than 25 years of doing it, but 20 years with this one book and, you know. Five years with the book. Yeah, 20, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It's phenomenal and it just keeps getting better and better. So maybe a little bit of runway on who you are, because not everybody will go back and listen to the previous episode. So give us a bit of a runway on where you came from, how you got here and why this? Why are you so passionate about building biology and making homes better? Hey, um, I'm an architect, as Adrian, as you said. Uh, I graduated from the University of Toronto 
1978, so don't do the math. You'll figure out how old I am. But um, as a young architect, I got sick from being in a building that was very much less than ideal, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I didn't find out for several years because doctors are not particularly well-versed, or at that time especially. And I had never heard the word health in my very strenuous architectural education. So I didn't know that buildings couldn't be healthy or that they could be detrimental to our health. So then I dived in. Uh, at first, I thought I, I would have to give up architecture because I could not be on job sites. I had become chemically sensitive and all the chemicals on the job sites would just really make me feel bad. And is, then, Is that unusual to you or is there a large portion of the population that suffer from this? I have a skewed perspective because for 25 years, the majority of our calls have been from people who want for health reasons, especially, or a building. So but you've managed to run a practice for 25 years. Yeah, you've, but 25 years, you've run a practice of people who are calling you for it. So that says in itself that it's not just you out there that has this issue. And I certainly know other people who, like my friend Sarah Dakota, who she also building biologist, and she says the same thing, like large portions of people that are suffering from things, but they don't necessarily recognize it either. Like you said, to so that chemical sensitivity, how did it show up? Yes, it, the problem is it's different for everyone. You may have a newborn with asthma or skin rashes or something, and that child is in that environment. For me, certain chemicals would just make me foggy-headed, digestive problems, but it mostly it affected my lungs. So I was getting um, pneumonia year after year without understanding that it occurred as soon as we shut down the house and closed the windows in the wintertime at that wow. time. So it took takes a while to put it all together. And it's for me, it was chemicals. But now we're seeing so many people who are affected just as severely with mold and electromagnetics. The chemical scene has gotten so much better. It's just a matter of knowing what to ask for and you can have a home without chemicals or without harmful chemicals to a much greater extent. Whereas mold and... Uh, EMF sensitivity seems to be growing as we install more and more. And as it's ubiquitous, people can't move away from it. And mold, I don't know about what you're finding in Australia, but we're finding in the U.S. and Canada and this continent, that a lot of those architectural experiments, the newest, latest, greatest thing, vapor barriers and where to put them and how impermeable they are, caused the problems. They were there were unintended consequences as architecture or products in architecture, whereas our ancestors built the same way with small innovations for hundreds of years and passed on their craft. New products are a dime a dozen, and they come out with regularity, and often we don't find out they sound great, and there are unintended consequences from those products. So all of this experimentation in the 70s and 80s and 90s about how a building should go together using these new materials, some of them have caused mold in buildings. Mm. And once someone's, and many people tolerate mold to a certain extent at some point everyone would probably see a health diminishing but for people once someone has become hypersensitive they literally cannot find a house without mold in our in north america so i've and, had clients who money was no object and they've bought 10 different houses and found they couldn't live in any of them and you had to keep trying yeah wow and so isn't the solution that they build one properly yes it's always at this it's a solution with that's a proper house will not make you well in and of itself you have to repair the damage on so many levels but it's you will not get better sometimes without that proper yes. living environment yeah yeah that as you say there's still damage to repair in your physical self it's more about that you're going to be in a space that's going to um, support that as opposed to yes. being in a space that's going to just constantly add to it. We find in um, Australia and New Zealand a similar problem with the mould, like it's everywhere. Where I live, I live in the Sunshine Coast of Australia, and we don't tend to lock our houses down very tightly. 
most people you could do an air test on their house and a pressure test on it and you'd find that it was wide open and then the other part of that is is we have a florida-like climate where it gets hot and sticky Mm -hmm. and so we also are nowhere near as urbanized as america you think of the volume of population so you're 300 and I don't know, 30, 350 million people. We are 24 million people, somewhere around that amount. We're in the same mm-hmm. size country. So we probably have more green spaces and more dust as well. That's created mm-hmm. by all these things and maybe less heavy metals in our atmosphere because of, mind you, Australia. We burn a lot of coal, so maybe not less, who knows. But that kind of part of it, like I I look in our subtropical and our tropical climates, we can't just go, oh, we'll just build a passive house. We can. But that means those people are constantly shifting the airflow in their house anyway. You can't rely on the number of exchanges it's going to have because somebody's always opening a door or a window to go somewhere or do something. So it's never Mm going to be a sealed environment. And so I really struggle with the fact that We could give people an indoor environment, but then the problem, a much better indoor environment, wouldn't say a perfect one, but a much better indoor environment, but then they're going to go outside anyway, and they're going to pick up allergens and stuff outside, and then we can filter the air that comes in, but we, a lot of the time, we want people to live indoors and outdoors at the same time. We want that kind of Californian aesthetic where the house is open and There is no doors and windows or Hawaii. I remember first time I went to Hawaii, walking into a hotel and going, hey, I didn't go through a door to get in here. Uh, What happened? I'd never experienced that before in my life. There was a reception desk that was in the middle of underneath a building, but it was like in a big open area. And I'm like, what? Why is there no doors and windows? So yeah, that mold thing is a constant thing here. And certainly I know lots of people that have high sensitivity to mold, like really high sensitivity mm-hmm. to mold. And it's, yeah, they're busy trying to clean their houses and with more chemicals to get them back to something. And then the house, of course, isn't built to not do it. So it just keeps coming around. Yeah, you have the opposite situation in much of North America. It's cold in the winter. And it's the mold that's in the house, in the walls, in the mechanical equipment that is in the air. And those aren't, there's a, some mold experts make a a distinction between naturally occurring molds and molds that grow on uh, Purina mold chow, which is what our homes tend to be made out of, unless we choose differently. And Many people in North America would be so much better off if they could go indoor, outdoor all year like you do there. Yeah. It's not for people who are very ill, yes, having a hermetically sealed building and pumping everything in, it's life support. The vast majority of people, once they get on a good health track, don't need life support. They need the support of nature. I agree. I'm just making notes. I agree. The support of nature is going to be healing in, in in many ways as well. We do have... Done a, for millions of years. That's how we have lived. That's how we evolved. It's familiar. We have, obviously, north of where I live, we have extreme temperatures, so incredibly hot. And south of where I live, we have really cold. So Australia, again, mm-hmm. like the U.S., yeah, they have it all. So a city like Melbourne or Adelaide, those and even Sydney, they have decent winters where it is cold, not snowed in. Let's not not like North America up in the top there. There'd be very few spaces in Australia where you would be snowed in ever. But in New Zealand, down in the deep South Island, you'd get that as well, where you could be essentially snowed in. You'd be snow all season. And then New Zealand is, have you been? Have you been to New Zealand? No, it's no. on my bucket list. There's something to do. It is a damp country. Like when you fly in, New Zealand's green. Like you really notice how green it is. And it's a bit like going to Ireland. You really notice how green it is. And that's because it rains mm-hmm. a lot. It's a wet country. Yeah. And so they had years and years of what they call the leaky home 
web through bad architectural practice and regulation and materiality. So the construction methods as well as the the building stand. And so they have a leaky home, I'd say, epidemic, like to mm-hmm. lots of houses pulled down. And they were built through quite a period of time as well. And so these houses have caused massive health problems for um, people in New Zealand, like mass. Yeah, unfortunately, here we have something called leaky condo syndrome. So in the right. 80s and 70s, all of these massive high-rise condos were built with the insulation, stucco, all sandwiched together. And it was supposed to be bulletproof, which it was, except at the seams and mm. with untrained crafts. So there's a... there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of apartment units that are moldy as a result. And so what's happening to rectify those? I don't know. I don't live near them and have not (laughs) been involved with one. The first one I heard of was in a very dry area that the residents happened to have done some investigation and found out that the walls were moldy. And I looked at that and I thought, this is the exact same method they're using in like British Columbia and places that are really humid and hot, hot and cold. And how could they not be affected? And sure enough, a few years later, I read about leaky condo syndrome. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Again, this is the same with houses, though, whether it be in a condo or a house, making the internalized captured mold is what you were saying about before. So this is mold that's inside the structure. So it's inside the walls or inside the ceiling cavities. It's, tell me a bit about what is there to to say if you've built if there is anything in the walls that can mold, and you let water in and don't let it out, you will create mold. And the trick is you may never see it. You may just not feel well. And there are more sophisticated methods now for. For finding out. For testing. My my co-author, John Banta, has pioneered something called pathway testing. And it's they're measuring a protein. They're not actually measuring the mold. So people can lay these out all over their home. They're fairly inexpensive compared to other mold testing methods. And then they can analyze it, graph it, where each one is located and analyzed to the point where you say, okay, this is the wall you need to investigate. So there's some breakthroughs. But luckily, we're in the job of building better for the next 30, 40 years, 50 years. So Mm. that's the opportunity available to architects and builders Mm. is to do it right with what we know now. To make the right choices now. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to your book, the first edition was like about half the size of the fourth edition. But did you just make it even more? Did you just make it bigger print or did you add more to it? What are you adding each time? What's happening in the book? Okay. Yeah. The print is smaller actually than the first one now. I forgot (laughs) to mention that, but we, when you keep doing things, you keep learning. I keep learning from builders and we've been in a really fortunate position to be called in as consultants now and work with other architect builder teams in North America and abroad sometimes too. And it's just been incredibly interesting for us to work in various climates, see what the traditional building is, see what the uh, state of the art of building is, and then to hear, I love working with build. They are natural problem solvers. So if you can define the problem, they can come up with some great suggestions and products. And so we get to learn from everybody and our knowledge base keeps expanding. And in this latest edition, we've added some homeowner chapters, more geared to what furnishings, what maintenance do you need to do to keep a home healthy? So it's, there's, it's, I think uh, it's really for, for a homeowner, but also for a professional. Yeah. Yeah. How to get rid of, you know, what's integrated pest management? How do you, what's, how do you, what do you do when you do get a pest? Yeah, yeah. Poisoning yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like where I live here in Queensland, you know, you have your house regularly sprayed for cockroaches and spiders. It's Australia, so there's plenty of things that will bite you. Ants, all these different things that you can have or that you do have in your environment. And of course, we want our homes free of them. But then at what cost do we, when I say what cost, not the dollar cost, but what cost to our health is it that we do Mm -hmm. that? And even when they're using natural products, 
just how much of it is in our space and how much of it are we breathing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's tricky. Being a human is and living indoors is really a tricky project. It's a really interesting thing because not just the building biology, but the fact that you're an architect and that you design structures. And when you're doing this consulting, so say, for instance, if you were to come here and you were to consult here on something, you would, you made the point of you look at what is traditional to the area or traditional to that, to what it is. And if you look here in Australia, and I may have this wrong, but we'll get some comments if I do. So I'm going to put it out there regardless because I'm a Kiwi. I can get away with that. But our First Nations people didn't build tons of structures. And it's a bit like, say, the American Indian when they were living in teepees as opposed to, say, maybe down in the south where they were living in earth homes. Ours were like the those American Indians, or they are like those American Indians, where they were nomadic in, in a sense. So they would use nature as a lot of their caves and things like that as their protection of where they lived. When you go backwards and you go, say, like that, if you were here, and you go, okay, what? how did those people live? Then really the first built structures were probably from the colonial who came here and they built something that was English and they just built that, that stuff everywhere. Same, yeah. We have the same issue as you in that we're a colony, British colony. We we do have Pueblo peoples here who built permanent structures. Mm-hmm. That's true. But it's not like the experience of a European who's around these seven or 800 year old buildings that, that have been modernized, or but they're solid. They, most Europeans know what it is to be in a solid building. Most North Americans Americans only know cardboard. Yeah. And yeah, they love Europe, true. but I don't know why. Yeah. This is another point, isn't it? It's, I was in Barcelona last year at a conference. And in Barcelona, of course, there's a ton of old buildings. There's a ton of new buildings as well. There's all sorts of things. And we, when we're in these old structures, the ones that are like out in the countryside and stuff, and they are old, and I've lived in the countryside in France previously as well. And you're you're talking about something that's been there for hundreds of years. Now, it may not be necessarily thermally as efficient as some of the things that we have now. Certainly didn't experience, not knowingly experienced, any sort of health um, issues on it. And maybe it's just, I, I mean, we used to live in a an old bakery in France and it was limestone walls plastered over the outside limestone walls and plastered on the inside as well and I've no idea what the plaster was but it was just a white plaster that was in there probably lime-based plaster probably and we had some that was brown kind of colored in there as well and look one when we were there this place had a baker's oven in it. This is when you know that your walls are actually breathing, which could be a good or a bad thing. So this baker's oven was big enough that you and I could have hopped inside it. We would have been able to curl up inside it. So it was big. And it was absolutely freezing. And I went, you know what? I'm going to light the oven. And so <laughs> this is a, a, a great lesson in um, being more observant about design before you light a, light a fire. So I get a bunch <laughs> of wood and the baker's oven, people can't see my hands, but the baker's oven is like a um, a half a ball. It's a half round, but this was built into the walls. So like a big pizza oven. And it was sitting, oh, maybe three feet to a meter off the floor. And that would have been so you could work in and out of it really easily. So I get a bunch of wood and I get a whole lot of paper And I decide I'm going to light this thing. So I crawl in at first. And as I'm crawling, I didn't crawl right in, but I crawl in towards the opening and I'm looking up and I can see the chimney. And so I'm like, the worst thing that could happen is the chimney's blocked and that could be an issue. And then I thought, chances are, if it gets hot enough, the fire will clear that anyway. Not thinking too hard about what my was going to go on here it's not if it's a stork yeah that, that's it yeah and everything's stone so it's there's no timber around me except for this the roof and so i light this fire and the amount of water that was in the limestone started bleeding out of the plaster walls so we had walls running with water and then that was steaming and not only that when you look at a 
pizza oven or a um, baker's oven, the smoke actually comes out the door and then rolls so that you've got a rolling internal combustion and then the smoke comes out the door and goes out the chimney which is just in front of the door so i had steam so it's minus three outside or something bitterly cold and windy i had steam smoke and water (laughs) running on the floor hot water running out of this thing on the floor and i'm trying to get enough wood in it and it took i reckon probably about four or five hours to dry it out enough that it stopped bleeding out of our walls because it hadn't been lit in years and years. We didn't have a warm day. We just ended up drying out the baker's oven. But again, that meant that the whole structure was actually breathing as well because it was taking that, it was working as it should. Yeah, it's an organic, it's an organic, sorry, it's a perfect building biology demonstration of, we think of that our European ancestors were, shivering in the cold because they didn't have central forced air heating and uncomfortable in the summer because they didn't have air conditioning. But those buildings had their own um, rhythms. Mm-hmm. And when you combine radiant heat and mass, you dry the mass out seasonally and the mass stores the heat. So you can have by our value standards or insulation standards, that's a very poor wall. But by comfort and health standards, that's actually they've got something really good going for them. And there, and that's without fossil fuel use with very, we, when I was studying building biology, I heard about the masonry heater or mm-hmm. the Kachelhoff in, you know, in the German. And I, when I, I didn't exactly know how I could get one, but I knew if I built my own house, I wanted one. And so we did, we got uh, a Finnish model called a Thule Kiwi. So what's it called? We, a masonry heater? What is what? What was what it called? It a, a, yeah, a masonry heater. So a masonry heater is it. Every country in Northern Europe learned how to heat themselves with very little wood in very cold climates. And so a masonry heater evolved and it works on several principles. And each country had one, the uh, Russian central stove, the German Kachelovin, etc. And they all work on similar principles in that number one, there's mass. Number Mm -hmm. two, there's contraflow. So the smoke just doesn't just jump up a chimney it recirculates around that mass to heat it and the last aspect is uh, surface area so mm-hmm. it would reflect the heat into the room and if you have and as you may remember from mechanical <laughs> classes that radiant heat heats objects not air so forced air heating heats the air so you're blowing air on you and yep. i don't live with it and i'm although 95 percent of americans do when i'm in a house with forced air I'm usually very uncomfortable because I'm not used to having dry, hot air blow on me Mm -hmm. when I'm too hot and then it it shuts off and too cold. So if you're using radiant heat and you have mass walls to store it in and you are a mass, you're heating the surfaces and the air temperature can stay comfortably and healthily cooler. This is like having uh, a, a heated floor at radiant, the radiant heat of a heated floor creates the same things like that and this is the difference as you say the if the space isn't warming up if the building isn't warming up and then letting this heat absorb back into you you warm up with it otherwise it's just having something hot that warms a spot on you like you say with a mass with forced air yeah and if you build the common commonly built construction here you don't have mass yes no. and because people have not even really had a lot of experience of mass in our typical homes they don't value it but it's a very valuable thing so when, it's undervalued in our energy systems yeah energy scoring systems yeah so what why don't we build with mass more now it's heavy yeah it takes craftsmanship it's heavy so it's not easily shrunk wrap and transported mm-hmm. we don't have the craftsmanship in most of this country in some areas we still do yeah. Europe, certainly, we've adopted, when I lived in New Mexico, Adobe was a resource. But we have, we use certain masonry products that really come from Europe. And there's a few people distributing them here, but autoclave concrete or insulated forms that are made out of recycled wood chip and cement. Those will create the kind of mass we're talking about as well. 
and they're very simple. Like you said, describe the walls you had in France. You plaster both sides and you're done. So we're yep. not introducing 10 different layers that need to work perfectly in harmony and 10 different craft or subcontractors. Because put you know, them together. Stuff, yeah. the joints. That's been our approach to working both with people who are ill and uh, with people who just want health is keep it simple and massive. And of mm -hmm. course, insulative as well. We need both. We need a balance and it depends on where they are, how much insulation you mm -hmm. need, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But you're way ahead of the game if you're doing combining that with radium heat. That was one of my most prized things I came away with as a building biologist. And yeah, so, you know, we can do so much as designers. We can make beauty, but you can build the same house out of one set of materials and the other set of materials and the experience of people we're visual but the experience of people being in those two buildings is going to be very different isn't it just it, they won't it, know why. yeah it's incredible isn't it and the the point that you made when we started this piece about you go to europe and you're in a, a building that may be 700 years old or whatever it is and there's something that feels good about it we we all come away from those places going there's something good that it felt good. There's something about it that that little unexplainable piece. And yet, and that's part of what draws us back to those places. It's, I always think of this in, in America with the Southwest, with Adobe. There's something about being in Adobe structures that it draws you in. I was in Santa Fe in March and just again, being in Adobe structures, I was in Taos, New Mexico, not Taos, sorry, Tucson, Arizona as well. And we were in Adobe structures and it, there's something about the weight of it that feels fantastic. But that doesn't it's mean that we can. Yeah. It doesn't mean that everything can be built with Adobe here. We have a, a, a law here or a rule here about when we do an ADU. So. A, a granny flat for those of you who are listening in Australia and stuff. So when we do that, the building is, uh, we've got sizes that we can't go beyond. So we might be allowed 90 square meters or 65 square meters, depending on wherever it's going to be placed and what the land size is and what the council, the local council's um, regulations are on it. But the building is measured to the outside walls. And so... Yep. code needs to be changed a little. There exactly. are certain places in the States where they've taken that into account. And so you only measure the first six inches the wall. into your square footage. So that you're not being penalized for using ecological health enhancing materials. Yeah, but it fantastic. takes education. It takes education. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because the code is is i'm going to say stopping is probably not the right word the code isn't written necessarily for building biology let's just say it's not written at all for building it's written for construction yet we have all these different things that you know like in the construction method for stopping mold and things like this like those become obvious problems yet you could be internalizing mold in your framing in many houses many builders every day putting the walls up and yes, putting the cladding on. What is wet? Mm -hmm. What is wet? And when you put a vapor barrier on it, which is called for in all of the North Code mm -hmm. here in the more northern, colder climates, you are trapping water, especially if you've got something that doesn't breathe at all on the outside. You're what we call weather-resistant yeah. barrier. They do make permeable ones. They are There are much better ways to build yeah, much not, better materials. It's, general, it's not general knowledge. It costs more. People don't understand or want to pay for that. And I don't know, it's like in uh, Australia, but here your home is your biggest investment. Mm -hmm. But you don't stay in it for a long There's a saying here, move, go west, young man. It's probably go east, young man, or something in Australia. But there's it the is. new frontier. We grew up in these countries where it, there was endless opportunity to just be a pioneer, just go further. We won't talk about all the social ramifications of the indigenous <laughs> peoples and all of that, but it's a big investment mm -hmm. and people don't plan to stay in them for generation to generation like they do in Europe. And so cost per square foot is the God. Yes. 
Yes, it's cost square, square, square meter for us. You know, this point that you just made about generational homes, this is something that fascinates me. And I have several clients that we call them legacy homes because mm-hmm. they are made to be generational homes. That's been thought into the land ownership often. And if not the land ownership, the way the house is designed and the style of the house and the materiality of the house, that it's not to last for 50 years, it's to last for hundreds of years. And not only to last for hundreds of years, it's to recognize that it will get altered in that time, that it will get refreshed. It will, stuff will happen in that time. We will live differently as just look back. I I laugh about this a lot. You look back 50 years or 60 years and you go, most people were happy if they had a kitchen with a dining table in it or near it. They had one living room. And if the kids all got Mm -hmm. separate bedrooms, that was a bonus. That was a real bonus. And if they had a separate bedroom, they normally would have a separate bedroom. Then there might be one or two other bedrooms in the house. There'd be one bathroom and that was a house. There was no office. There was no theater. There was no games room. There was no rumpus room. The garage, maybe there was a garage. It might've just been a carport. We're talking that in 50 years. And now one screen in the house and that was a TV, freestanding TV. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. If not, if they had a screen, otherwise it was a radio. And it it sat in the corner of the living room. Just all these things. Like now we live in these houses that are like mini hotels. And it's the most fascinating thing. It's the level of expectation for it. We've lost that simplified thing. Everybody wants their own space, yet they're all living in a communal space. So it's a, yeah, I find it fascinating. The whole. What what I've realized over the years is that um, square footage is not the key to happiness. Or health. <laughs> yes, for sure, health. Health <laughs> is one of the keys to happiness, definitely. But uh, only... Yes, it's more of a key to happiness. <laughs> yep. Yep, I totally agree. I think that we've got these amazingly high building costs. Since I started this podcast, building costs have probably doubled where you are and where I am. And certainly in the UK. So if we were building something for a few thousand dollars a square meter, we're now building it for double that price. And if not more, and that's in a matter of a few years. So surely this will relate to people building smaller and smarter because square footage and square meterage does equal dollars. Even if it doesn't equal happiness, it certainly equals dollars. And so for every square meter of space that you put on the ground, you're looking, or in the sky, it's even more expensive, um, but you're looking at a a dollar cost. And so with prices soaring, or I think they've maybe semi-stabilized a little now, but we're going to look back at these two, three years over COVID and beyond just past And we're going to go, that was the biggest single jump in the cost of housing. And that we'll see probably in 100 years or more than 100 years. And it's going to be a blip in that radar, but it's not one that comes down. It goes up and then it will slowly peg along and then go up again as inflation slowly takes its toll and rather than these massive jumps. But as a response to that, we should be seeing house sizes come down. What do you think? I think the big change is the American dream is to own your own house. And if mm-hmm. we used to have a family of four, the woman would stay at home. Not that I'm all for that or anything. And with a single salary, a family mm-hmm. could buy a house. So fewer and fewer people are working harder. And that dream of owning your own home is is vanishing for a lot of people. So. There's, there is diminishing returns. It's not if you lived in a pea-sized house with a kitchen and a bathroom that it would be, the cost will in a way go up per square foot. It's just less square feet. So there's some medium. We certainly have built a lot of luxury and come to expect certain sizes and certain features 
that in the end, we can be happy with less. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is who can build and who can't build is changed. That whole landscape is changing with this, these tremendous increases in the cost of housing. So custom homes become an absolute luxury. It seems to be. Mm. Yeah. And then when we go backwards in the, in the fact of from custom homes to we, we call them project homes here. Then what we end up doing is we go back to the cheapest method to build as opposed to the best method to build. So in this case, if you can afford to build and you're not using the cheapest method, again, you've got the the means to be able to afford it. And so it seems wrong. You're living a better life. You're potentially living a better life not just in the square meterage or square foot of the home, but in the materiality of the home as well. Because course, yeah, health is a huge social issue. Who can mm. afford to live healthy? Who can afford vitamin supplements? Who can afford yeah. to all, all from a, a bottle of vitamins all the way up to where you lay your head to rest at night is there's a social division there. Mm. And there's some really promising things here too, small I was part of a co-housing community and one of the founders, and those are not large houses. There are a lot of people on not so much acreage, but well-designed, so there's lots of green spaces and thriving, just thriving. And all of us were able, because we pooled these kind of resources, to build houses that we may not have been able to afford to build. So that was 30 years ago now. Yeah. This is, I think this is a... Another, yeah, that's it is. It's really promising, and people being conscious and educated, and that's one of the things I love about what you do is that the better, the more that it's spoken about, the better the education, and with the better the education, the more people ask for it. And it's going to take me right back round to something we talked about right at the start. You were saying that you were on this before we started recording. You were on Dr. Joseph McCuller, is it podcast? And he's a big name in America. And it caught the interest of many people, what you spoke about. And I think that if you can send me the link to that, we'll put it in the show notes as well so that people can go and find that. But the piece that fascinated me most with it was you saw that that with your book sales that suddenly – there was people buying your book that was a new demographic as such, which was biohackers. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, Dr. Mercola, he's a, really an alternative health provider in that he educates people and he provides alternative alternatives for health to pharmaceuticals. And a lot of the people who he has a tremendous following and a lot of the people who are following him and others, their goal is not to maintain health. It's like, how far can I take this? How radiantly healthy can I be using whatever's available? So he's a huge source for that. And that's a lot of his audience. And I'm of the opinion that where we live is the quality of where we live is one of the biggest untapped biohacks out there to suddenly have an audience of people who are willing to experiment and willing to see, oh, what is it like if I shut off the electricity to my bedroom? What's it like if I plaster a wall and bring in certain qualities of, you know, begin to control the subtle electroclimate and the microclimate? and, And it gets into subtle energy, which is what a lot of biohacking is about. And so this was a brand new audience of people who, had never thought much about their houses and how it could enhance their health. And so that was it was really wonderful for me because our sales suddenly went, we suddenly went to a number one bestseller overnight. Yeah. That fame doesn't last too long, but here I was reaching so many people we never have reached before. And does that help people who are ill and struggling? In a way, it does. It brings it more mainstream. So Mm -hmm. you're not going to a specialty store to buy the one glue that isn't that you can tolerate. It becomes big box stuff. Yeah. Very exciting. Really exciting. 
Yes, I, I'm with you. I think I've got a house that was a renovation that I did for a couple of biohackers. And <laughs> we did a lot of micro cements and the clay-based plaster work and stuff in this home. It's actually coming up on TV later this year, this particular house. But they were very much, or they do, they live very much with reducing the EMFs and about having the paint types, the everything that they can like influence, they will put an influence on it. And they're they're mindful of where everything is in their home. They don't have Wi-Fi in their home, things like this. They've still got Wi-Fi in the street, obviously, but just those kinds of things and then just some shielding and stuff as well. And I think it's pretty amazing. They were my second ever exposure to that where somebody was consciously going, I'm making these decisions about the materiality in my house based on the fact that I'm a a biohacker, essentially. I'm doing something for my health and I see that my home is actually a big part of the time that I will spend and where I will spend that time. Yeah, yes. it's really yes. good, really so good. great. Yeah, yeah and they, I, they both have many clients like that. It, exactly. This is the thing. It would be you learn so much from them because they are they're out on the edge. They're looking all the time. That's what they do. That's their fascination. And they're looking to improve their health and improve their family's health and their lifestyle because of it. And I think it's... It's quite fabulous because what we learn from them, we can put into anybody's or everybody's place that we do just by changing the wiring diagrams, just by just so many things that we can do just because we know. And if we weren't pushed by the people, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't Mm -hmm. know that's where it's at. People don't know that they have to ask for that. Once you learn it as an architect, you're going to want to educate your other clients and explain what you're doing. Mm. And just a lot of it just include it. Why include a toxic paint when you know 10 good non-toxic paints, etc. It's So people just need to know to ask for it. Is there a standard in America that is like a recognized standard? Uh, this was a discussion I was having with somebody yesterday. And he was saying to me, he said, where's the 10 heart home? And I'm like, hey, or he didn't say he said 10 star. And um, I said, no, 10 heart. We're talking healthy. And we were talking about homes that embody wellness in their structure and their materiality. And we were saying, so not every home is necessarily going to get 10 stars. And we changed it to hearts in our conversation. And where's the standard that if you were, or does one exist in North America, certainly not one in Australia, where you go... This house is certified, maybe, but it ticks these boxes. It ticks the MF box. It ticks the the permeable building wrap. It ticks the right insulation wrap or, or whatever it is, the right insulation, the right pieces. It's been built within this methodology, which means that it gets this tick. Is there a standard like that's recognized anywhere? We have some standards. And certainly it's better than not having sensors. It's a lead system. And they have, there's a couple of health-based systems well and fit well. Yep. Here's the issue I have with point systems. Building biology by its nature is a holistic approach to something. So it takes many disciplines. There's no one rewarding a clean electromagnetic climate here. So electromagnetics are not in the discussion. Energy efficiency is big in the discussion. Mm-hmm. So it's very, so I, in my own research, there are many reasons, compelling reasons not to use spray foam in a building, but it has become the energy hack. It's the energy hack. This stuff, there's nothing you can get with as much R value. That's our insulation. Yep. I don't know if it's the same. Yeah, same hinge. Yeah. As these synthetic plastic insulations but i've seen people get sick i've seen you've got sprayed walls and you have termites behind them there's no way to get at the termites Mm -hmm. without totally so there are many things there's always a bit of a 10 steps forward and eight steps back kind of approach to any of these or result net result Mm. from any point system if you get a, a point 
for a bicycle rack then because so people can take a bicycle to work, which is one of the commercial lead points. Yep. Uh, you will find whoever is there specifying a bike rack, even if you can only reach the place by freeway. Um, exactly. Because that's a point. It's a point. So you're picking a developer is automatically going to pick the things that are um, cost the least and are the easiest to get the status. Yeah. The low lying fruit, we call it. Yeah, exactly. That is it's such a good point. Yeah. You can only get to the house by a freeway, but it's got 10 bike racks because that gives it yeah. like 10 extra and stars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, having said that, though, I am so grateful that a program like LEED does exist because it started uh-huh. looking at ingredients and started setting, setting standards for lower VOC and started a more conscious reporting standard by all the manufacturers. So there's some real, we look back at COVID and think, oh, that was horrible, but there's some real silver linings. One of them being that we don't think twice about doing a podcast around the world and finding out our commonality. Yeah. yeah. So it's it'll all um, iron out over history, but I have not found working with sensitive people as we have over decades now, I have not found a paint point system that I could read through and say, would this automatically make it safer, sensitive? And absolutely not. You could get all the points you need with without ever addressing many very important things. Yes. So there's these core fundamentals that need to be addressed. And as you said before, they take an X number of different craftsmen or trained contractors to be able to implement them as well. Yeah, I always like to talk about food because we went from being an agricultural nature and having essentially organic food delivered to everybody, available for everyone, to factory farms and the worst of pesticides to an awakening where I don't, we have farmers markets everywhere in Mm -hmm. every major city. There's Mm -hmm. farmers markets now. And I think had the big farming industry ever thought it was important enough to pay attention to they might have been somehow banned but it's it just shows that people know what they want and good things happen in spite of our foolishness or our greed or whatever it is that causes us to be in these horrendous predicaments about not having healthy food not having yeah um, healthy homes yeah it's a really good parallel it's like the, the convenience over actual, like it's easier to buy something that's packaged than it is to go and pick tomatoes or whatever. The fact that they taste completely different is another thing. That should be a really good sign to people that they're missing out on something versus they're Some not... people have taste buds. Some yeah. people have developed taste buds. And it's the same with the biohacker analogy. They have developed taste buds for health. And so... Yeah. They want to taste the fruit. Yeah. And that's wonderful. I think so as well. Yeah. We, most, well, lots of generation of this latest generation and probably the previous one has never experienced maybe a farmer's market organically grown peach or a whatever it is. A tomatoes, I always think is a great example because when you get the right tomato, you just can't believe how much flavor the thing has. It's not red. That it red. has the same name. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just coloring in your salad. It's it's doing something way more than that. I'd like you to just finish off by telling us a little bit more about your book, where people can get it. We know you can get it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And certainly in Australia, you can get it on Amazon. In America, you can. I don't know. Give us some. Just... Hold it up so people can see. Get the one with the heart. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there we go. With the, the cover heart. has. This is the fourth edition. Yeah. The fourth um, edition. It's... Yes. And it's and, got the heart uh, we, between two houses. And Adrian and I looked it up just before this podcast to make sure it was available directly in Australia. So you can get it at Amazon. We can send them across the ocean and it might take a month or two to get it. But apparently you can get it in four days. You can get and, it in four uh, days from Amazon. Yep. Yeah. And that's in Australia. And our biggest audience is actually in America. So in America, it's readily available on Amazon which would be your fastest method to getting it. And it's a bit of a Bible. Like it's, I say that it's, it goes through every factor that Paula has spent 
a lot of years studying and refining and putting into practice. It's not just studying and refining it. It's putting it into practice in her own architectural practice and then also in many other architectural practices where this is a, a book that should be lying on the table or in the bookcase in every practice, whether they're an architect or an interior designer or a building designer, and even good builders. This is a, a, a book that sort of underpins most of the knowledge that you're going to need to do a much better job. Yes, we need true. To, you know, how to maintain a healthy house. You can get one delivered and you can ruin it in a day if you spray it with pesticides and put false fragrance and all of that. But so you need to know uh, the responsibility of owning a healthy house is to keep it healthy. I'd like to put a word out for my co-author, John Banta, who's stuck with me for 25 years now <laughs> because he has a different skill set. He's a national mold expert, but he has spent many years as a kind of a building forensic scientist. So taking apart buildings that have failed. We as architects have only manufacturers information to go by and habit and practice. But uh, it's been invaluable to me knowing how buildings fail because that informs how to do it better. So I think that he's my biggest asset in writing this to round out my education as an architect, which is so, so if, was inadequate when it comes to health. Yes, yes. So if you, in particular, if you've got a mold sensitivity, again, in this book is where you go and then... It's John's work that you're talking about. It's a, that's his specialty. That's his. That is. So his... I've learned so much from him about how to build it right in the first place. Yeah, that's so. Every builder should be reading this book as well, because there's so much to be learned about getting it built. But from a responsibility level of being a designer or an architect, this book also can help you with your specification and. Your Absolutely. detailed that drawings as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I yeah, think of it's got to start somewhere. And even if that conversation is, why do I have to build it like this? That's a great place to start. <laughs> if nothing else, <laughs> at least it gets the conversation moving. And the people who benefit from it are not only the trades that work on site, because they also have to handle all these different things, but it's beyond them, it's the people who live in it. And then if we're looking at legacy or generational homes, that's for which we should be, but not that's not always going to be the uh, the case, but that's going to give it a longer, much longer runway or, or not runway, but um, longevity if it's been considered at the right times. Mm. That's right. Paula, it is always so fascinating <laughs> to talk to you. I feel like my <laughs> mind gets exploded. And I go, oh, God, why do I know so little as opposed to why should why, what, what more do I need to know? And I think that there is a community around the world of building biologists. And I know that in Australia, there is only about a dozen that are, have studied and have got the qualifications that sit themselves in that rare air, as I would say. So if you're in Australia and you're looking to do something in Google building biologists, and if you can't find one that you like there, certainly Google in the States as well. And otherwise contact Paula directly, as she said, she consults on projects. So this again is like, how do you get, how do you get the knowledge so that you can actually enhance your health or what you're doing to enhance your health isn't being undone by your home. Paula, I've got Some one last Oh, sorry, go. I just want to say some of the Building Biology Institute courses are online now. That's That was a innovation, mother of necessity, COVID innovation, we, uh, that some of our seminars are now online. So it's you can study at a distance. You might be in the middle of the night for you, but... <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I've got one last question for you, which is... I've got two, but I'm going to ask one. And maybe I'll ask both. No, I'm just going to ask the one. In your home, so in your own home, mm -hmm. where is your favorite space? Where's the space that you love the most in your home? In the winter? It's, here, I'm going to open my door because you may be able to 
Oh, I hope it's neat out there. You may be able to see my masonry heater. You'll see the back of it. And that's my favorite place in the winter, sitting back to back with it. Let's see. Let's see. I don't know if you can see that. Yep. No, you can. Yep. You can see the corner of that soapstone and back on the back of that. There's a seat. In the summer, my So you sit back to back. So you sit back to back with it. So it warms Mm -hmm. you through from your back. I love it. Nice reading light. It's one of our favorite spots. But in the summer, my favorite spot in the whole house is not in the house. It's outside in my organic garden. Organic garden. Okay. So if let's go with the masonry heater in the winter. If I had to get you to tell me an emotion that being snuggled up to it evokes for you, what would that emotion be? Cozy. It's just the, it's the emotion, the primal emotion of at home and safe. At home and safe. And when you're at home and you're feeling safe, what does that do for you in your life? What does it, how does it nurture your life? What's your answer? That's a tricky question. It nurtures everything to have a home base and to love that home base. <laughs> That was a, for a tricky question, that was a great answer. It, it nurtures everything, yeah. It just allows you to be, and, and then your these other magnificent, one. These magnificent beings that were, we, we were created to be without all the interference. Yeah. When you've got, when your other answer, which was summer, and it was outside in your organic garden, how does that make you feel, and what, what emotion would you say it evokes? Oh, for me, it gets me out of emotion. I'm, I'm just in, I love the whole process uh, from gardening it to eating it. And it's just, you ever get that feeling that you're somewhere where you really belong and yeah. time just goes by. And for me, that's what the garden is. It's my time, my communion with nature. Some it. people do that very well in the wilderness. And for me, it's Picking tomatoes. It's interesting. I'm a surfer and I don't actually love the sea. I find it a bit vast and shifty. So it's not, I'm not <laughs> super relaxed there. And every time I surf, whether it's a good surf or a bad surf, it doesn't matter. I get something from just being in that water. It's, it's the same as you're saying with being in the garden. And I do the same when I'm. I would say around trees, but not necessarily a lot of trees, more grasslands and stuff like that. And grasslands with trees and rolling hills and and being up high is, I know that these are places that I thrive in as opposed to I don't thrive in the other ones. Like I'm very aware of that. And so your garden piece, it's a beautiful answer as well, because it's actually, again, attached to your full health. And it's not just, it's mental health as well as it is physical health and gut mm-hmm. health and everything else. And then the, I love the fact that you, with your masonry header, you sit back to it. Uh, it it's, it's not a visual point. It's just, it's like having your back is covered. You're safe. It's got yeah. that element to it as it's, well. It's mm. design, isn't it, Adrian? Yeah, it is. I believe that a home the architecture and design of a home should be able to respond to people's emotions. And mm-hmm. we have that again as a, as part of the well, responsibility. I don't know whether it's responsibility. The opportunity would be the word. We have that as the opportunity is how do we make the space respond to the way somebody, especially in a custom home, plans on using it and what will make them feel really good about it. And I think of your organic garden, I don't know your home, but no doubt you can see it from your home as well. And so you've always got this connection and you travel in and out to it. So you travel from one point of safety to another point of freedom, but that piece of freedom, as you said, is your communion with nature, which I think is, yeah, glorious. (laughs) Paula, thank you so much. It's so fabulous. Thank you too, Adrian. Thank you. This has been fun.
We will talk again soon, no doubt. Look forward to it. (laughs) Hi, guys. I'm Adrian. I'm your host of Talk Design Podcast. I started this podcast a couple of years ago, and in doing it, my aim was to talk to amazing design people, creative minds, people who I could learn from and hopefully you could learn from. This was a big part of my whole reasoning for starting the podcast. We've cracked over 80 episodes and we've done two homes tour specials for the AIA Austin in Texas, which have been really great fun, talking just specifically about houses. We've talked to HGTV stars. We've talked to building designers, interior designers, architects, business coaches, and some inspired characters along the way. People who have captured my imagination and their creative output and gone, huh, these people would bring a story to somebody else and maybe inspire them to go a little further with what they're doing as well. So I wanted to reach out and ask you all for some advice because you are the guys who tune in and listen and subscribe, and I really appreciate that. So I want some advice from you. If you guys would be happy to share with me A, what you like best, so that I can better direct what we cover as content. And then also, if there's things you want to solve, what are the three biggest things you would like information on? What are those kind of keys so that I can look and go, okay, let's find somebody who speaks specifically on these points and get some depth of information back to you that would be really useful in your business or in your life or in your home whichever one it would be. So if I could ask you to do that, I would be forever grateful if you would share with me just through the email based on the Talk Design website, which is www.talkdesign.show. If you could just reach out by that email and say to me, hey, this would be a really great subject for me, for my business or for my family or for my home or for the way I want to see life, I would love to be able to support you guys and find those people that we could talk to that would bring that to you. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I so appreciate the fact that you listen to the podcast. It makes it all the more fun when I get messages from you to say, hey, this inspired me. I had somebody who sent me one the other day that said, your podcast, and we were talking on a certain subject, it was a game changer for me. It was a game changer in how I viewed how I was looking at what I was doing with my design and what was going to come from that. So these things make it all the more worthwhile. So please, if you could tell me top three things that would be useful to you, I would love to support you guys in delivering that. Thank you, and thank you for being a listener. Take care. Have a wonderful day, evening, wherever you are, whatever it is. Cheers, Adrian. Over and out.